Welcome to Soulful Connections. I'm Amanda Solar, your host. I started this podcast because I believe when we share our thoughts, our stories, and experiences, we help one another to create more meaningful lives. And I also think that an important part of life revolves around our search for meaningful connection. That seems to only happen when we get real about who we are and we authentically share that. So listen in, try to answer these questions yourself, and let's connect. So today I have with me Marion Callahan Samkowitz. Did I say your, right, your last name correctly? Samkowitz. No worries. Many people mess up with it. Shoot. I even said it out loud like three times. <laughs> I don't think I could say it out loud three times. Samkowitz. It's not hard. Um, but anyway, Mar- I know Marion as a reporter. That is the incarnation with which I know you as a really talented wonderful reporter um and you were a reporter for the morning call for the bucks county courier times and currently you're teaching at cabrini university yes teaching journalism and digital media and photography oh my gosh so how is that going can i just ask well it is um it's going great it's most definitely a a switch it's it's a different Um, It's a different career almost entirely. Um, I I would say at least half of it is. I I feel still feel like I'm very much a journalist and trying to keep on pace with all the changes that are happening in the field. And although I just left in August, I still feel like I have a lot of catching up to do. Um, As far as as teaching uh, at, at the college level, I absolutely love it. In fact, um, it has most definitely given given me more energy to move forward with ideas for um, journalism and digital, uh, you know, the future of digital journalism. I mean, the students are so innovative, they're so passionate, um, and they have um, beautiful writing voices. And so being in a position where I can help give them a platform for their writing voices is is really a privilege. Um, and I, I advise the um, student media called the Loguiter at Cabrini. And the students are so entirely invested in that student media organization. Um, they're doing, you know, they're not just writing, they're really pushing out their information via social media. They want to do video, they want to do podcasts like this as well. Um, I'm, I'm hoping at some point to um, solicit some support from the community so we can grow our program uh, because that's community partnerships are something um, that is very much in need right now to help bridge academia and um, and the communities and, and the industry. You know, the I wouldn't just say the journalism industry, but the industry of content creation. You know, this is a crazy question, but what does digital journalism mean and i i ask that because when i think of the word digital journalism i think is it just like stories that pop up on social media 
Uh, like what is exactly digital journalism? So um, first, let me at least tell you a little bit about how things shifted, because when someone says journalism or even um, considers taking a journalism class, they think about traditional journalism, you know, journalism for, for print, journalism for writing. You know, you think about um, interviews, profiles, uh, covering elections, digging for public records. Uh, you know, how to format a story, how to structure a story, the narrative lead, you know, all of these traditional ingredients that go into what most people know um, as journalism. But it is so different now. Um, if you're going to be a journalist today, you are very much involved in reader engagement, you know, so you have to understand engagement metrics, you know, optimizing search engines, producing social media only coverage producing video only coverage you have to be visual understand great 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 visuals print and um when i say i should say um still um photography and video um and also you know understand content marketing because no longer can we depend on our our information to be you know uh, mailed or delivered you know at the doorstep of, of somebody's home but but now we have to get to our readers and our viewers through social media through different connections so the entire digital landscape um, is something that journalists have to be familiar with um, and have to understand how to navigate because there's so much more to it than unfortunately just reporting a story. It's so interesting. So because you've done traditional journalism for a number of years, how does that feel to you? How does this new landscape feel for you, a seasoned you know, journalist? Right. Um, since it's happened, I feel like it, it has happened gradually, but every year it seems to be speeding up, right? So um, 10 years ago, when I first started kind of managing a local community, uh, they called it the uh, hyper, oh my God, I'm, I'm losing my my memory here. <laughs> I'm hyper local websites, right? For the morning oh, right. call for the Tribune company. Um, it was very localized. It was me doing content management even before I knew what that word meant, right? Um, uh, creating headlines, um, not just to uh, describe a story, but headlines to capture, you know, uh, SEO, you know, so when somebody does a Google search, they're more likely to, to hit on that story. So these little um, additions to our workflow started happening a while ago. And then, you know, once we had phones, we were capturing video. And then once we captured snippets of video in order to get it out to our public right away, uh, we needed to to social it, right? Um, so it, it, it began it, in, a, in many ways a response to the need for 24 hour breaking news, right? Um, because we had to get that information out continuously. And so it has evolved, you know, clearly over the last 15 years, but in the last five years, it's just completely changed how we work. And um, it doesn't mean that, you know, digging for, for news and um, the foundation, you know, the facts and vetting the information and finding sources who are authoritative, that hasn't changed, but the workload has, and it's intensified and it has taken its toll on the industry, which is already suffering to begin with. Yeah, 
So um, I do want to ask you your thoughts about the industry as a whole and also your thoughts about, I just would love to hear your insight and your opinions about the future. But can I find out about your journey? Like, did you always want to be a reporter? Was that always your dream? Well, yeah, in, in a way, yes, <laughs> because I remember uh, joining the newspaper in middle school. It was the Titan Tribune. At, I was just in seventh grade and I absolutely loved it. And I wasn't a great writer. Let me make that very clear. You know, I always I still feel like I'm on my writing journey. Um, but I was curious about the world. I was very shy and I know that's hard to believe also, <laughs> but I was very shy and that notepad and that pencil kind of gave me a portal into other worlds. And so I was, I feel like I grew as a reporter before I grew as a writer. And that was pretty much the path even when I broke into the industry and started in my um, young 20s working for the Miami Herald, you know, where I started at the bottom. <laughs> I was fetching coffee, filing faxes, if you remember what those oh. are. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> um, writing obits, you know, but my news, um, my nose for news definitely helped get me promotions where I was constantly mentored by better reporters um, who helped me with my craft and and continued you know to help me you know in my journey i got a chance to work with two-time pulitzer uh, gene miller at the miami herald and um while it was an incredible experience i remember the first two words he said to me about a story that he was helping me with which is just you have it all wrong you just backed into this and so being a journalist, especially in your younger years, it takes thick skin because you're going to hear um, straight up what you're doing wrong, what you need to do better. And you have to be OK with that type of criticism. And at the end of it, I was I was really proud to have sat next to him and watched him tear up my copy and rebuild it. <laughs> really cool. So did you grow up in Florida or how did you land at the Miami Herald? Yes, I grew up. So that was my hometown paper. Um, I also, yeah, I also did, you know, wrote for uh, something called the Teen Tattler, which was part of the Sun Tattler, a newspaper that folded. Um, I think even before I graduated uh, um, college. So the Miami Herald was the dominant newspaper in South Florida. That and the Sun Sentinel. Um, so I am from Florida. I actually was born in New Jersey, but six months old. You know, drove. Um, I. I my, my parents relocated to South Florida and that's where I went to school and I um, you know, went to college at the University of Florida. So I'm a, a Gator girl. And um, yeah, I loved growing up. There was a great news environment. Did your parents, were they newspaper junkies? Was that like a thing in your family? Was reading a big thing? Was that kind of the culture in which you grew up? No, um, I would be watching a lot of soap operas, maybe writing soap operas if I if I reflected the, the media choices of my family. Um, actually, my, my father was very much a, a philosopher and a thinker. He majored in philosophy and religion, and um, you know that got him really far. He was a postman, um, worked for the um, as a mail carrier, and so I mean he he definitely helped. Um, you know, plant the seed of, you know, creative thinking and questioning and, um, and just kind of 
uh, inspiring me to think beyond what's in front of me, you know, to, to ask the questions um, beyond the surface about people, about life, about education, about religion. And so um, even though they were not news people, um, they were thinkers, you know, and they um, gave me that curiosity for the world that I think many reporters should have. What do you see as, I mean, since I've, since I have grown up, newspapers and news in general has really changed. Yes. Um, is there a, I mean, are we going to be readers in the future? Are we going to care about news? Are we only going to care about like a story here and there? What do you see as the future? What do I see as the future? Well, well and you're I like, you're looking your crystal ball. <laughs> but you're that's a good question like because you've, you've touched upon that. a couple of things. So like yeah. language, let's begin with language and the written word, right? Yeah. Um, and storytelling. I, I feel that um, that will never go away, right? The ability to construct um, copy, you know, um, whether it's for, uh, you know, print, you know, or for a video, you know, or for, um, for, for B-roll, for a slideshow, um, or for even a podcast, you know, I, I think that um, having a grasp of the written language and being able to communicate concisely and to draw readers in um, and to, to tell stories that are meaningful and relatable to other people's lives, I don't think that will ever go away. In fact, I actually believe there are more. There's more demand now in the industry for clear communicate, clear communicators, who can um, take that skill and translate it, translate it on multiple platforms. So I'm finding that um, those skills are very much in demand. So I don't see those fading. So the the problem I think we have right now is that those skills in relation to news, um, there's not a whole lot of value being put on news, you know, by the everyday person. And that has to change in order for our industry to survive. And, and what I mean by that is like, we value our clean water, right? Our, our air, wow. yeah. we value our education system, but do we truly value vetted information, right? Do we, um, and, you know, in this age of misinformation, and we know there is a lot of misinformation and a lot of the free media that we find on, on social media and via Google and through a number of platforms that do not, you know, hire <laughs> um, journalists who have spent, you know, much of their career or their studies researching how to get information and how to get the correct information and how to know fact from fiction. Right. So all of that expertise that a journalist brings to the table um, is often dismissed if it's not what the reader believes in. Right. And right. so how do we build that credibility? You know, how do we. Um, so I, I honestly I do think that we need I think education basically um and getting the community involved i think we need to drop the idea of journalists um at, inside newsrooms or on tv as being the only vetters of information and we need to educate the public on exactly what we do and so how do we educate the public on on what we do um and and why do we do that 
you know, to draw them in, we need to let them know what's involved in proof, not proofreading, in, um, in fact checking stories, in, in pulling together investigative um, journalism pieces, you know, like um, like Kyle Bagenstos at, at USA Today, who's, you know, his team of reporters um, showed, you know, basically how a meat um, packing plant um, was, you know, exploiting its workers, you know, dismissing health concerns and um, in, inevitably it resulted in a death, but they they dug into those that information and they exposed a lot of wrongdoing, a lot of putting profits over people. Well, who's going to do that if if journalists don't? And um, so unless we educate the public as to the value of what will be lost, and some people are seeing that loss, then we're not going to get people on board. So we have to do a better job, essentially PR, you know, something that we, yes. we pledge never to go into the dark side. We have to <laughs> promote ourselves, you know what I mean? Yeah. And let people know, even in the stories that we, it took us six months to do the story, uncovering, you know, reading 3000 documents, talking to 400 people. And that is what, what USA Today did. Um, and while some people might question that one paragraph that sheds light on what went into it, I think that, um, that that's necessary. You know, I also think that we need more community collaboration and we need um, I, I, I kind of see a an ideal model in um, a, a community collab. Ah, I can't even speak here. So in, there's a lot um, of alliteration in what you're about to yes. say. I think. <laughs> Let's try this again. Community collaborators and correspondents, right, working with academia you know, students who are looking to um, have a platform to practice um, these skills, these interviewing, and also students are not just bringing a thirst and a hunger to practice, the students are bringing innovation, right? They're the future, how they consume and how they produce will be a big part of journalism moving forward. So, so that academia, that part of it can't be dismissed as just sort of the community helping academia. I, I think it goes both ways. And then as that third part of that triangle, you know, that ideal, you know, save yeah. journalism, you know, triangle <laughs> formula would be professional journalists and investigators. And so if we all three worked together, you know, to, to help, you know, clean, you know, um, our, this, this, um, you know, misinformation ecosystem, then, um, then I, I think great things could happen. Yeah. So would that be, if you had like, you could create your future along with the future of <laughs> journalism, I'm not putting too much on your shoulders, am I, Marion? <laughs> not a bit. <laughs> oh, look, there's my dog here. Can you see her? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> if if you could create, you know, the perfect future for you and for journalism, would it be a community collaborative? Would that play a role in it? Or are you like, you know what, somebody else do that? I'm seeing myself continuing down the path of education. I, I do see like I would very much love to be part of, you know, a a community hub, a laboratory of sorts, you know, like an, an incubator for local media. Right. But to do that, we would need partnerships. You know, yeah. we would need like, for example, if we wanted to cover local health, 
then um, we would need sponsors, you know, from the community uh, to to step forward and say, listen, I, I do want to invest in in local news. Um, you know, clearly there would be a dividing line between the sponsorships and the editorial decisions, but we would need just like like I mentioned, just like most people um, provide, uh, you know, <laughs> philanthropic funds for, for the environment and for, for water and for other health issues, I think the, the health of the community is worth investing in too. So if we have that piece along with colleges, you know, I don't th like, I think it would be more than one college because there are many colleges with students and classrooms who are dying to find out how they can invest and go into journalism, right? When all these doors are shutting everywhere in, in traditional newsrooms. Um, journalism, journal, journalism students right now are coming up to me and saying, where can I get a job? Yeah. Or um, am I going to make enough money in this industry to you know, pay my bills? And um, I have to be frank about you know, what there are jobs out there, you know, and I do see a, a bright future for journalism, but not in the model that it's pre presented to the majority of us today. So if we take those students and we give them a, a playground a, a, um, that's monitored, you know, by um, journalism professionals, you know, I, I think that you have this, um, this synergy uh, you know, for truth, you know, seeking um, for uh, for so much. I, I really believe that. And I, I think we can give the community the eyes, right? Um, the mm -hmm. writing, uh, the pictures that so many communities have lost over these last, you know, 10 years. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that yeah, you have to dream, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah I, exactly. I, I do yeah. See, yeah, and I'm an idealist and I have yes. a lot of energy and, I would love, you know, to see, you know, I know that the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, they have the Lenfest Institute, and I know that they work with many Philadelphia organizations um, and nonprofits that are very Philadelphia centered, um, you know, but what about the suburbs, you know, I mean, I, I know that um, the suburbs, you know, while they may be, you know, much wealthier, you know, um, economically, wow. Um, I, I think when it comes to information, uh, I think we're short. So, yeah. um, and as, as hard as I know the local newspapers are working, there are fewer feet on the ground and we really do need community collaboratives. Um, and, and, it, I, and unfortunately it can't just rest on one person's shoulders. You know, there has to be an yeah. investment. Well, you know, I'm, I'm happy to put on the cape and I need some wind. You know? Right. Right. Yeah, I need some wind and wings. You need like the, uh, see, I don't watch Marvel movies. I could draw some superhero analogy if, if I watched more Marvel movies, like, but I know that there's not just like Superman. He kind of teams up with like, you know, other people. Right, right, yes. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so this has nothing to do with journalism at all, okay. but because I have you in my crosshairs, I like to ask people just random questions. All right, so, bring it on. If, you know, and if you don't have an answer, it doesn't matter. You can just skip it. Um, okay. So what kinds of books do you like to read? Do you read books? Are you strictly a... Um, news consumer do you read only nonfiction? do you read fiction like what 
what's that look like? Oh, I read a little bit of everything. I'm a big fan of Don DeLillo. I like Nick Hornby. Um, uh, let's see what else. I I still like Ken Follett. <laughs> oh yeah, no. And, I, and even yeah. like I I like I like different books for different reasons. Um, I also like Dan Brown for his ability to um, create suspense in such a short amount of, of, of space in his books. So I, I admire, I admire the craft, you know, I also admire storytelling in many different ways. And so I don't judge anyone for wanting to read, you know, well, 50 shades or whatever, you know? right, right, right. although I have to say it's not, I'm not a big fan, but um, I think reading in all forms to help preserve the language, to help um, give people a visual imprint of what's happening. Um, I think the more people we can get to keep reading again, the more likely people who write are going yeah. to be able to survive. Um, do you have a favorite book or do you have a book that impacted you? Wow. Um, I, there's a book called a prayer for Owen Meany. Oh, I love that book, Marianne. <laughs> yes. John Irving. <laughs> yes. And there was just something magical about it. You know, I mean, writing is supposed to make you feel emotion. And I was just a big ball of emotion after reading that one. Yeah. Um, so I'd have to say that that one might be one of my mm -hmm. favorites. Yeah. yeah. What about um, movies or, or a series or any kind of other media? Is there something that you've seen recently that you just loved? Or is there like a favorite movie of all time? So that's a big game of Thrones girl. So <laughs> I can't, not much to me can compare to that. I thought that that was just such a, you know, a, a great, um, powerful story. I don't know how, um, the writer George Martin was able to just weave in all of those narratives and, uh, you know, and, and yes, the ending, I would, I'd like to rewrite that myself, <laughs> oh, but, um, I could do a series. whole podcast on the game of Thrones, And I kind of have, because I'm Brad, who I work with, mm -hmm. he and I did a podcast because I watched it later than everybody else. Mm -hmm. So I recently had Brad sit down with me and we talked about it. <laughs> yes. So you'll have to listen and then you'll have to weigh in. Maybe we need to do a group Game of Thrones discussion. <laughs> yes, and we should all come up with an alternative ending to the HBO okay. series. Okay, okay, okay. That will, that's what, that's an actionable feel... item we can bring to the table. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. We're doing it. We're gonna do that. <laughs> yeah. um, what about quotes? Do you mm -hmm. have any, and quotes are hard to pull out of thin air, I realize, so you may not be able to, which would be normal behavior. But um, is there <laughs> is there any quote or is there any kind of like, do you have kind of a mantra or anything that just you kind of return to? Wow. Um, so I don't have a quote, you know, that I, that I fall back on, but I do try, I try to remind myself um, whenever I feel like I'm getting lost in an avalanche of, of things to do, to think big picture, you know? Um, to break it down and say, what's important? What am I grateful for? Right. And mm -hmm. how do I want to move something forward? If something didn't go my way, okay, can't do anything about the past. How do I take what I've learned, you know, both good and bad yeah. and make positive change from it? So I suppose it's, it's a forward looking view, you know, and with a constant reminder to be grateful, right. Um, 
because it, and to, and to treat, you know, every day, like it's a day that you get to do something you love, right? So I love to teach. I love journalism. I like taking photos. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a chatterbox. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah. And I like to help others. If you could lift others, um, you're definitely lifting yourself. I'm not saying you do it for selfish purposes, but if you have the ability to lift someone else, I think that there's no better reward. So I try to to preach that to myself, to my kids, and to anybody who's feeling a little lost. Okay, how about, speaking of people a little lost, what is the best advice or among the best advice you've ever received? Among the best advice. Or you could give it, like it could be as simple as one woman I know years ago told me, to always take a grocery cart when you go into the grocery store because you always get more than you need. So it could be that simple. And then I have much deeper advice, but that one, you know, sticks with me. Um, the one piece of advice that, that has, that I, that, that was given to me, and I suppose it was my, my father, is that don't let things go unsaid. You know, because I like I was extremely shy as a child and in my teens, um, somewhat grew out of it. And if I was grateful for something or if I really liked something that someone did or if a teacher helped me grow, I was still very quiet about it. I would, you know, maybe nod and give a thanks, but um, words matter, you know, and directly telling somebody about the impression they left on your life um, carries so much more than one person might think. And so, you know, with that said is, is don't leave anything un unsaid. I guess that was how I, I translated that. it as well. I love that. What about your favorite trait in someone, a trait you like or admire or respond to? <laughs> I love, I love funny people. Yeah. <laughs> I like people who make me laugh. I'm like sense of humor, but my favorite trait is when other when I see others valuing um, people, all different types of people. That's that's my best trait. You know, my favorite yeah. trait that I that that I admire. I love to see other people. <laughs> I'm not being really clear. So much for clear there communication, <laughs> right? But no, I, I guess the valuing of other people. Yeah. You know, when somebody tips Absolutely. somebody well, when somebody holds the door, when somebody offers help, that type of of um, selflessness. And I, I have to say, I, I do see a lot of that generosity and spirit and words in people. Um, that's most admirable to me. And of course, um, coming at a close second is coming in at a close second is a sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. Both are, both of those traits are, are wonderful. What yes. about a trait that you deplore in others or that you hate to see in others? Um, people who are condescending, you know, people who uh, walk past others without a glance. So I guess it's almost the polar opposite of what I was mentioning before. Um, you know, a, a pretension or um, a judgment uh, that some, somebody, another human being may not be of, you know, as, as a value, you know, of value yeah. to the human race. And I do hear, you hear more of that than you think. Maybe it's because of a belief or maybe people are dismissed all the time because of things that are out of their control. And so that sort of dismissive arrogance is probably what, um, you know, upsets me. But 
I don't think anybody is beyond improvement. So <laughs> there's still hope for those people. Okay. And then finally, um, if you had like a magic wand mm -hmm. and you could change one thing about everybody else or the world, what do you think you would change? Let's see one thing um, about the world. Um, that's really tough. The magic wand. What would I do with that? I know. And here's wand? the thing. I clean it my house changes. with that magic wand. <laughs> you know what? Oh my gosh. That would be so good. <laughs> I would organize my desk, which I'm glad you can't see. <laughs> I love it. All right, and so you know, know, honestly, I always, I change my mind every minute. You know what I mean? What I would do with that magic wand right now is probably different from what I would do tomorrow. And the reason is because this is what's in my head. Like if I'm talking to you, I think, oh geez, I wish everybody wanted to be well-informed. I wish I could just change the fact that people operated from a place of, I wanna be right more than I wanna be informed. Keeping in mind that I will change that an hour from now. The next conversation will influence, but you know, you can only change one thing. And it has to be now. The the oh. the genie is only here for you know. Oh, sorry about that, everybody. That's my dog. That's okay. <laughs> so one, I, I I guess I suppose it would be really you know wave a magic wand to give a voice to the voiceless, right? Because you know why are movie stars and singers you know on TV giving us you know solid advice on. Um, on problems happening in their world. You know, we have so many media distractions um, that take us away from really uh, from, from everyday people who have voices that will never be heard. And so I would um, wave my magic wand and um, give a voice to the voiceless, to people who think they can't break through or get attention for something that is, um, that is truly a societal ill or need. Um, yeah, I don't know how that would happen, but that's why it's a magic wand. <laughs> exactly, and I will give you a backup magic wand that will clean, you know, anything you want to clean. <laughs> and I will- <laughs> My car too, did I say my car? <laughs> oh my gosh, my kids' rooms, that's what I'll- yeah take it on yeah, yeah i'm not allowed in my kids rooms <laughs> i shouldn't say i don't that. want to go in my kids room <laughs> i'm very afraid i'm very yes afraid. yes speaking of going to dark places um anyway marion thank you so much for coming on to the podcast for sharing your insights i very much appreciate it so well, no, thank you so much for having me and, and for wanting to learn more about me, what I do and what I'm hoping for. I appreciate that, Amanda. Hey, thanks for listening. Giant thank you goes out to show advisor, Roseanne Griffiths, the talented musician, Bill Aronson, who wrote, produced, performed the Soulful Connections theme song. And a thank you goes out to Brad Sanders for creating the Soulful Connections logo. Love it. That's new this year. So much gratitude to these guys and to my friends and family who continue to listen and guide me. And once again, to you for listening. I would love to hear from you. Please shoot me an email at soulfullife at gmail.com. That's S-O-L-F-U-L. 
L-I-F-E at gmail.com.